Orcas and salmon are friends that need help. Our ocean pals are facing some trouble. Less trouble, more bubbles. There's so much we can do. Do you know what I'm thinking? Let's start preaching extinction. Hello, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. For those of you that are new here, the Breaching Extinction podcast explores the plight of the endangered southern resident killer whales through interviews with the people trying to save them. There are currently less than 80 southern resident killer whales left, and they are currently threatened by lack of prey, vessel noise, and water toxins. All these factors impact one another and play a significant role in their population decline. They have historically spent much of their time in the Salish Sea. However, they've been seen less and less likely forced out of their home by lack of prey as well as busy and toxic waters. I'm your host, Erica Wirth, and I decided to start this podcast in 2019 after spending a summer working in the Salish Sea and learning about these animals. Each week, I dive into a new conversation with guests from varying perspectives. I approach these topics through an interdisciplinary lens in hopes of uncovering the intricacies of this complex issue. Through this, I hope to share insight as well as fit the puzzle pieces together needed to save this species. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. If you have any questions or are interested in being featured on the podcast or sponsoring us, please reach out over Instagram at Breaching Extinction or send an email to info at breachingextinction.com. Thanks. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. I hope you all had a wonderful week. This week, I'm here with researcher Aricia Benvenuto. How are you doing today? I'm very good, and you? I'm doing well, thank you. So tell us about yourself. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Okay, so I am from Brazil. Uh, I live in a huge city here called Sao Paulo. And I, I, I was born here, but I had the opportunity to travel a little bit. So I lived in lots of places and I lived in Canada for a year. So, but I'm from Sao Paulo and now I'm living back in Sao Paulo. And currently I'm doing, doing my PhD here in the University of Sao Paulo. Amazing. So walk us through your journey. How did you get interested in marine mammals and how did you come to do the work that you're doing now? Uh, I've always wanted, I think most people say that, but I've always wanted to work with marine animals because they're very charismatic and passionate. So uh, when I was five, I went to the U.S. and I saw an orca for the first time and I was kind of like, whoa, I have to work with these animals. But once I was grown up, I was thinking, do I go to biology, vet med, like which path do I go? And then I had one biology professor in high school that he told me, go to vet school because there's there's not a lot of vets in Brazil working in that field. And it was a very good advice. So I got into vet med and when I was beginning there, everyone asked me like the professors, what field do you want to go domestic? Like dogs, cats, cows. And I was like, no, uh, cetaceans. <laughs> and they told me I was a little bit crazy, but a few professors in my university worked with wildlife. So that's how I firstly got uh, working with terrestrial mammals. And then I went to Canada working with aquatic birds uh, and research and was a good experience. And I fell in love with it. Like I want to do research and I want wildlife. 
And once I come back to Brazil, I got to know uh, further my supervisor. And then I start working in his lab. And then he gave me one project uh, for undergrad working with penguins. So then I started with the aquatic animals. And then I started doing lots of externships all over Brazil and then in the US as well and lots of opportunities and I fell with love in pathology as well so lots of uh, experience and and growing in that field and once I graduated I was hired to work in a rehabilitation center in southeastern Brazilian coast um, performing necropsies on the aquatic animals that stranded in their area so that's how I got it it was kind of like doing uh, a different uh, growing in that, that path, uh, getting to know lots of places and lots of people and falling in love with the animals. Wow, that's amazing. So what is your current title then? I know you're working on your PhD, but do you have like a, a job with that as well? I know that's a full-time job in itself. Yes, no, I'm, I'm currently only in my PhD. I'm almost done, but I'm kind of like a researcher. I am a vet, but uh, I'm more doing the researcher part right now. So I have uh, helped a lot in some the, of the rehabilitation centers that we have partnerships. But basically, I'm in Sao Paulo. I get the samples and doing the lab things. And occasionally I go to the field. So <laughs> very cool. So we're here to talk about your recent publication, Hemotropic Mycoplasma in Aquatic Mammals, Amazon, based in Brazil. Um, so give us a baseline of how did you come to study this? And then tell us a little bit, too, about the dolphins that um, are featured in this paper. Okay, so um, in our lab, uh, we... Once I decided to do my PhD, the main focus of it is to investigate emerging infectious diseases in marine animals overall, but specifically more cetaceans. So I'm, I have uh, lots of partnerships with multiple institutions all over Brazil, including the Amazon. So our lab has these partners and they're sending samples for us for a lot of years. So since 2001, I believe. So we have these bank tissues and we're trying to investigate lots of, in multiple diseases and pathogens and causes of death and things like that. So that's kind of how I fell in love and got in disease diagnostics. But uh, these specific study is kind of it wasn't planned at all like uh, we were investigating to some samples of the Amazon river dolphins and the Bolivian river dolphins which are both of the dolphins that we feature in that study and, and eventually we got uh, testing these bacteria as well but those dolphins they are endemic of the Amazon basin so they live there in the rivers uh, there's multiple species so people usually uh, in uh, they used to think that it was one species, but now they know there's multiple species. They all belong to the genus Inia, and they are classified as endangered of extinction. So they face multiple threats, uh, such as uh, pollution, um, bycatch, the, even the traffic of the ships. Um, there's a lot of people that hunt these animals. There's a lot of people that don't like these animals over there. So uh, they're, they're facing lots of threats and they're endangered of extinction. So they're kind of a little bit different. And I have to confess that I 
haven't uh until that paper i didn't even like i never seen them it's just i was working with marine animals uh, basically cetaceans and i went looking to the animals and they're like the, the river dolphins are so different and they're so um so beautiful it's very different from the marine dolphins so that's how everything started but on that paper specifically so we got the samples because what's happening in the amazon uh how do we start uh studying this animal there's two groups there that they are doing uh scientific expeditions to capture these animals for more than 10 years and basically all the knowledge that we have so far is because they're capturing these animals and analyzing all these populations so they collect lots of samples and they're testing the contaminants, uh, the genetics. And then we did these partnerships for us to test a few pathogens as well. Mm. And the funny thing is that I was not going to work with those animals and even these disease in my PhD, but we just happened to do it because we were testing some terrestrial mammals for the disease and those samples arrived and we thought, okay, let's do it. Let's see if they have it as well. And mm -hmm. for our surprise, they were positive. And mm -hmm. then it was just kind of what's going on. They're positive. And then I sat down with my co-supervisor and my supervisor and we, we all looked into the data and we talked to ourselves, okay, we have to look further into that and maybe it should be part of the PhD. So I don't know if I mixed too much information, but basically it was unexpected for us to be working uh, in this bacteria and even finding in these animals, they're like in, in the water, in the middle of the Amazon and, and everything like that. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. So tell us a little bit more about this bacteria and what it means that it is a positive um, thing in these animals. Okay, so emotropic mycoplasmas, they are this small bacteria, they're uncultable, and they're, they, have the, uh, the, they are capable of infecting the surface of the red blood cells of mammalians, including humans. So they adhere to the surface of the red blood cell and it starts using the energy of that cell. So basically you decrease the lifespan of that cell. Um, overall, in individuals, they are okay, they're healthy. Uh, it doesn't cause any symptoms. However, in individuals that are facing some threat or are immunosuppressed or have other infections, they can develop a disease, uh, especially anemia and even death. Mm -hmm. So in humans, for example, some HIV positive uh, individuals, they have developed this disease and died because they're immunosuppressed. So the same thing happens in animals. Uh, overall, like the main uh, investigation that we have so far in this bacteria is on domestic animals because uh, it gets a, it's a huge disease on cats and in cows it, it decreases the productivity so for like the money so there's a lot of research on that and the recent years it has increased the research on the wildlife as well because we're seeing that multiple groups they have this bacteria mm. and there's a lot of genetic uh, genetic diversity and the potential uh, there's a zoonotic potential so it can jump to humans as well so mm. that's why people were so invested on investigating this bacteria but the main thing is that they think it was a bacteria of the terrestrial ecosystem because even though we're finding a lot the, the researchers are publishing a lot like there is in cats there is in cows there is in monkeys there is in humans however like how does the transmission happen so no one knows that 
So, so far, the main hypothesis is that it's transmitted by hematophagous vectors, such as mosquitoes, ticks. So that's why they thought it was more a land disease, mm -hmm. uh, but apparently not. So that's why it was so surprising for us to find in river dolphins, and it's not such a high prevalence that over 60% of the animals were positive. So that's why it was so surprising for us. For sure. That's, that seems like a pretty high percentage. Yes, 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 it seems. And it, it, it was, we were a little bit uh, surprised by it. Definitely. So what does this mean for the health of the animals? I know you said in cows, it makes them less productive. Do we know what kind of impact it has on the river dolphins? Not yet. Uh, we look a little bit about the hematological um, parameters of the animals and overall they seem healthy. And as I said, uh, in most uh, individuals, it's a subclinical disease, so it's, it causes nothing. Um, and usually in these pathogens that we've seen, lots of uh, high prevalence, uh, usually they are not as pathogenic because they kind of are endemic. And in our data, there's a few evidence of that as well, because mostly of the animals that were positive, they were adults, and we had none of the calves positive. So that shows uh, a pattern that indicates that this pathogen is co-evolving with these populations. So that's why we don't believe they're very pathogenic, but we don't know so far. So we have to look more into that. But we think for the future, it's best to monitor this disease because as these animals are facing lots of threats, such as contaminants that can lead to immunodepression, in the future, uh, a disease that causes nothing can cause this mortality. So we have to be looking more further into that and still keep monitoring this disease. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really interesting that you bring that up because I was just watching um, a YouTube video and this girl was talking about how, you know, sometimes we don't always know what pathogens can be transferred from like humans to marine mammals. And a lot of people, I feel like it's kind of been a hot topic, like the gray whale tours in Mexico and like people swimming with orcas and things like that. And I've wondered if it is a risk for humans to make cetaceans sick. Do you have any insight on that? I think it's a both, uh, it's a path of two ways mm -hmm. because we can make them sick and they can make us sick. Uh, for an example, like goes nothing with marine mammals that we have proof, but for monkeys, for example, we have the herpes simplex, uh, a herpes infection of humans, which for us causes almost nothing. It's a lesion in the mouth usually. And it, it just disappears in seven days. However, if a monkey gets contact with a human that is positive, the monkey dies because for them, it, that disease that causes, like that uh, pathogen that causes nothing in humans, in monkeys, it's very pathogenic. So the jump of hosts is uh, very problematic for lots of uh, pathogens. Usually they're more uh, associated with viruses. So we have uh, believed that morbidly virus, which is a huge topic on marine animals, we believe that uh, uh, it began in the jump of a dog probably for a marine mammal, specifically more a seal. So uh, it can happen, and especially for humans and bacteria as well, because they can, like, there's a lot of bacteria in the mouth of the cetacean, so it can bite the human, I don't know, it can happen, or even the skin. So I think it's possible that that, that pattern and this is happening, but we don't have, like, evidence of the tourism impacting so far. But what we know is that 
basically all of our trash goes to the ocean. So there's a high risk uh, of COVID in marine animals because they, uh, they think that the fecal uh, extraction of COVID is very high in humans and eventually everything goes to the ocean and they're finding in the water. So probably we're going to see in the future, near future, uh, marine mammals positive to this disease. And I, I do believe that happens in a lot of diseases that we don't know. But so there's this risk. And when we think about that bacteria that I was talking about, like we don't know the, the zoonotic, there's a zoonotic potential, but we don't know for sure if it's gonna happen or not. But for that river dolphins specifically in the Amazon, they do the tourism as well. So in the North part of the Amazon near Manaus, uh, people can uh, give fish for these animals. So they have, they basically touch the mouth, they touch the skin. So it can happen if it's a zoonotic potential and we don't know the transmission path yet, like, so it can happen. So we have to monitor that and to try to understand what's happening and, this, and to prevent these, uh, these events of jump hosts of multiple pathogens. Definitely. That's really interesting. So the next question I was going to ask you, but you kind of already answered it, is why is it important that we study things like this and that we have this information? Yeah, I really do believe that uh, the monitoring of diseases is a topic that it's very uh, high, uh, very, very known right now because of the pandemic, because we we're, we're facing something that probably started on animals. And because we changed the environment so much, we made multiple species. They are not supposed to be together, being together, and that just increased the chance of this pathogen exchange. And then now we will have a pandemic. So I think for researchers, we have to um, take this opportunity to show people the importance on monitoring diseases and pathogens that we don't know, especially on wildlife. And specifically, so I think there's a One Health uh, approach for this paper that we have to understand what diseases are circulating there. But also for the conservation, like we don't know. Uh, we have to understand what's happening with these animals to protect them. And not only in the disease part, but on the physiology, ecology. So it's a multidisciplinary approach. So I really do believe that monitoring diseases is one of these legs of this huge thing that we have to learn. And so that's how it's important. So that's what I said, like, we don't know about the pathogenicity, Probably uh, it's not, uh, it's so clinical right now, but we have to monitor and to see if individuals with multiple co-infections or they are not in a good place, if it's causing disease. And as they're facing multiple threats and they're endangered of, uh, of extinction, we have to be monitoring these populations. And in the other aspect, like these animals are very near us and other animals as well. So probably we have to monitor these spillovers of diseases to, I don't know, prevent future pandemics, not specifically on mycoplasma, but other pathogens as well. So I really do believe that that's one path of doing one health and also conservation. Absolutely. Um, so that kind of feeds into the next question I was going to ask is, you know, does this specific study, is it going to have any impact on conservation or management efforts? I do believe that so far, no, but one of the main questions that pop up with the with this preliminary, preliminary data was, okay, we know that it's circulating uh, in river dolphins. However, all the manatees was, were negative. 
Why is that? Like they're in the same environment, they're in the same ecosystem, like it doesn't make any sense. So that's why it made us look for a different direction in the transmission route. And we really do believe that the transmission path of the aquatic environment is different from the terrestrial environment, which is good because it's kind of like it's not changing bacteria. So it stays in the terrestrial and it stays in the water. However, it made us think, okay, what Syrians have of difference from river dolphins? Like Syrians, they eat plants, river dolphins eat fish so probably the food intake could be related with this infection or even the parasites that they have it because of the, this food intake so the first thing that we're going to try to figure it out a little bit more uh, before talking about conservation and doing some different measures is to understand a little bit more about the transmission and trying to see if it impacts or not. Because if it doesn't impact, I think that scientific expeditions and keep monitoring those populations is going to be enough for now for this disease. But we have to look into these other um, perspectives and contaminants. Oh, the contaminants are increasing. So let's monitor to see if this disease now it's causing anemia. Oh no, it's still not. But now they have this skin lesion. So I think it's all connected. But so far, I don't think there's going to be any uh, directly measure uh, the thing they're going to do but we should definitely start uh continue to research and to monitor the diseases especially now that we know that they have these infections in such high prevalence absolutely so do you plan to continue to collect data on this so uh yes uh, but uh, what we did, like, I fortunately, after this, this data, uh, I was invited to do a capture in September of this year. So we did uh, went to a capture, we captured some animals, but a different species of Amia in another part of the Amazon. Mm -hmm. And with these animals, we're performing a health status evaluation and also a pathogen screening. And now mycoplasmas is one of the main things that we want to look into that. And we're trying to investigate uh, a little bit further about that route of transmission and also seeing its correlation. So we took lots of measures of health. So we analyzed the whole animal and trying to see if we can correlate with that. Obviously, we don't know if that species has it. We do believe that they have it as well. Mm. But we, we still hope to continue. There's other captures happening in the Amazon right now of both Amazon river dolphin and Bolivian river dolphins. And we still wanted to see it if we can find it in different, not only on the blood, but if, if we can find it in different materials as well, doing maybe showing for us, no, it's in the saliva, for example, which is one of the things that we believe it's happening as well. So that's how we want to go with the mycoplasmas. And additionally, the second chapter of my thesis is going to be focused now on the marine cetaceans and syrenians. So now we're investigating, okay, we know that there's they're circulating in the river. Let's let's see this in the ocean because sure. it's way bigger. So what's the possibility of a First, being factorial, I think it's almost zero in the ocean. But so that's how what we're doing so far in the PhD. And this whole thing on the transmission is probably going to be after the PhD. So it's going to be a future 
investigation. But on the PhD, now we finished this Amazon first part of detection. Now we're detecting in marine cetaceans and, and Tyrrhenians as well. And then in the future, probably trying to study more these routes of transmission and pathogenicity. Okay, very cool. That This is all very interesting. Um... Yeah, it's, it's kind of a crazy talk. My mom, you're talking about the bacteria. I was like, yeah, we, we pathologists, we like our diseases. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's very interesting, obviously, because we just went through a pandemic and people are thinking more about that. But, you know, aside from that, it's interesting to see how things are transmitted and how it impacts species differently. Um, that's I'm just, yeah, I'm kind of like blown away right now. Cause I had, I honestly, like, I don't think about dolphin pathogens all that often. So yeah, yeah. I think it's more a vet thing uh, and not definitely just vet, but pathologists, we think that a lot. And usually uh, it's, it's how I think it's so important for us to be all talking together, like to be multidisciplinary, because maybe a pathway of transmission is related with the biology of these animals and not uh, a health thing. So that's why we have to be sharing those informations because it's all connected in the end. Like it's the animal has all these like the squares and it's all connected in the end. So that's why it's so interesting to be talking about it together. Yeah. For sure. Um, do you find it easy to be able to, to collaborate with people from different walks of science to investigate these questions further? Uh, I don't find like I really do love uh, to communicate and I really do love to connect. So that's why I loved so much being able to live in such different places and get to know such different people, like even in cultures, even in Brazil, like we have multiple cultures, like people from the Amazon are completely different from people from Sao Paulo. Like we're talking about a huge city and people in the Amazon, they have this connection with the forest that I have no idea that existed. So I really like approaching different um, like paths uh, of people and, and knowledges. So not only on research, but even people that know, like they live in that place for a long time. They are, they have this relationship with the dolphins. So I really do like that. And I really, try, I'm trying the postdoc right now that I'm devel developing the, the, the project right now, trying to make it a way of having more people uh, invested on it, not only vets but journalists people that uh we have to talk about it in different groups and get out of our bubbles so that's something that it's hard in the beginning but i think it's the future for us to do conservation is trying to connect all these bubbles together and talk about things that i don't know nothing about Vo uh, uh, acoustics, like nothing at all, but I have to learn something because probably it's important for the organism to work of this animal and diseases can impact in that as well. So it's all connected. So I, I do believe it's hard, spe specifically in some fields and in some places, but I think that we have to learn how to communicate uh, and to approach uh, different people with different perspectives and trying to talk the same language, which sometimes it's very hard. Yeah, definitely. Um, speaking of collaborating with people and getting on the same page, um, you know, one of the themes that we've seen throughout this podcast and talking to different people about a lot of different avenues of science is, you know, collaborations and relationships with indigenous people. Um, what is, you know, 
what is it kind of culturally like for the relationship between the Amazonian people and the river dolphin? Is it something that's seen more as like a nuisance or do they have a, a positive connection with these animals or something else altogether? I think uh, it depends. Uh, there's a lot of people that they have this negative perspective, uh, perspective on the animals. Uh, the capture that we went uh, in September, uh, it was in a southern part of the Amazon. And and in that region, there's a lot of uh, fishing like sports. So they go there to as a sport to fish. And people, they think that they are competing against the dolphins. So they don't like the dolphins, which doesn't make any sense because they're not going to even to eat that fish. Yeah. But uh, so in that case, there is a negative relationship and the dolphins are curious. So I think uh, there's people in one of the jobs is trying to show people they're local and they have like the opportunity to even get money out of it. Like the, the dolphins are beautiful. You can work with tourism. You can show them to tourists. You can get money there. Uh, yeah. You can, the government has to go there uh, to, if they're, they're uh, getting in the way of, getting the nets uh, out and done and something like that. Uh, the government has to interfere as well. So it's uh, in overall, it's not a good uh, positive relation that they have, but obviously that's changing. And there's a lot of people that now they are working with these animals as well. And that, that's the work of lots of collaborators and those two institutions that work in the Amazon over 20 years, trying to get to know the people and these animals and trying to connect them. But I think it's a step-to-step -step situation. Like uh, nothing is black and white, even for us, like we're trying to protect the dolphins, but sometimes like we have to go and look to the human perspective of it. And, and it's hard to do it, but, and we have to get a common sense and then no, you can work here. So I think it's a step to step, but uh, in the Amazon overall, uh, they kill these animals because they think it's amulets uh, to, it happens a lot. So the relationships with them are not so positive, but they're learning that it can be. So okay. that's something to rely on, I think. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think a lot of um, different people are having shifting relationships with animals. So uh, that is definitely positive. Um, is Are there any final thoughts that you have for our listeners or anything else that you would like people to know? Mm, let me think. I don't know. Uh, uh, I'm uh, working for a few years basically with dead animals and for us it's kind of hard because people usually don't like it because they they want you to go night geographic and have these pictures of whales and I love to be in the field with live animals sure. but now I've learned the importance also of a carcass and and some it's something that usually when I'm talking to students and I try to share it with them like Sometimes like the animal is dead, but we can learn so much with one carcass and then it can show to us what's happening within an environment, within a population. And then we about with that knowledge, we can save other animals as well. So I really do believe and I do hope that in the future people would understand that a little bit more and appreciate that a little bit more, even though I know it's not a, a beautiful uh, field to work at. But I'm, I'm seeing this, at least in Brazil, people are more 
working with the dead uh, stranded animals as well. So it's one of the things that sometimes I try to portray to them that usually in Brazil, you're not going to be working with a live dolphin. You can, but mostly in the strandings, they're dead. So you have to learn to work with the this aspect that is not as positive as we want. So... Uh, and that's it. Like, uh, uh, I really do love pathology and diseases, even though they're not a, a very uh, easy topic to talk to. Yeah, definitely. No, and it's, I think it's very unique. I've, you know, come across a lot of people that either study the same species or, you know, similar topics. And you're the first person I've come across that studies pathogens. Not that there's <laughs> no one else out there, but it's like, it's new and exciting because, this is not a topic that I've dove into and I hope our listeners find it just as exciting as I do because like this is fascinating it's a whole other world that I think a lot of us aren't exposed to um and I think you're totally right there's a lot of value in the things that aren't as bright and shiny and pretty as you know a breaching humpback whale so yes. I, I do love, love them but <laughs> yes but there's value in other things too so um, yeah, the final question I always ask people is what can we learn from the whales? But in this case, what can we learn from the dolphins? It's a very hard question because it's so, uh, there's huge possibilities on how to respond to that. But I'm going to, uh, we can learn like everything that we want because as I was saying, there's a lot of perspectives and lots of uh, deer, these mammals that they're living in an environment that they were not meant to be because they're in the water and they have lungs. Yeah. So for that, it's just like they're very like resilient and very intelligent and they're facing multiple threats. And for me, like they are these indicators of everything that we do sometimes is going to impact on them. So I think we, we can learn multiple things about ecology, community, uh, relationship of the this sociology of them, but also about everything that they do. So I don't know, it's everything, like about resilience, about uh, the community, about diseases. We can learn everything that we want. Like if you have, if you want to learn it, they're there, like they're very complete and they're very unique. For so sure. I'm very passionate. So I think everything, <laughs> so it's not a very, I don't know how to answer because for me, it's just too much. Uh, yeah. There's so much that we can learn from them. Absolutely. Yeah. I totally agree with you. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was a pleasure thank having you. you on. Thank you so much. And I'm very happy to be here and I'm very happy. I hope you like it. You all yes. like it. I'm sure everyone will. This is this is very new and exciting. I feel like I sometimes cover some of the same things. So this is very exciting. But <laughs> thank you for being here and thank everybody for listening and be sure to tune in next week. Bye.